Hey everybody, this is the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. If you are listening to this while most of us are under quarantine due to COVID-19, I hope you and your loved ones are healthy and safe. If you are listening to this and you are not under quarantine due to COVID-19, I hope you and your loved ones are healthy and safe. I appreciate your support of this podcast, so please make sure you mash that follow or subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen. Also, feel free to leave a comment and a rating on the podcast if the platform supports it. You can follow me on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph, and if you have an idea for a show or you'd like to be on the show yourself, drop me a line at detoxpod at gmail.com. On this episode, I'm talking to storyteller and poet Mike Rosen. Mike has toured the world, uniquely addressing his perspectives regarding grief, anxiety, addiction, and pornography. He is also currently working towards his master's in mental health counseling. Mike has a lot to say in this episode about sex and sexuality, particularly in reference to his own addiction to pornography. We also talk about how childhood bullying contributed to a poor self-image, why elders need to have honest discussions with their kids about healthy sexuality, and how learning about yourself is an ongoing process. Mike has a lot to say, and it's all valuable. I hope you enjoy. Well, hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Mike Rosen. I am a poet and storyteller using these art forms to open up conversations around mental health and mental illness. I work with high schools, universities, Fortune 100 companies on three continents, and I'm also a master's student at the University of Pennsylvania where I'm looking at the impact of mental health more globally, especially how we talk about uh, sexuality, masculinity, and things of that nature. Um, and one day, whenever I decide to grow up, I will likely be a, uh, a therapist and continue my writing work um, with that license behind it so I can try to help people both on and off stage. What made you decide that you wanted to become a therapist and study mental health? Yeah, so, well, to study mental health, that one was easy. I was already writing a lot about it. My own experience with anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, seeing it in uh, my neighborhood, my family, my friends, um, a lot of the stuff that I was writing about and performing about was related to mental health. So that was already there and natural. And what would happen is I would go and I'd perform. And it didn't happen at every show. I don't want to create you know, some myth around it. But on several occasions, someone in the audience, whether it was a teacher or usually it was a student, a young person, they would come up to me and they'd say, I mean, the whole thing about what I do is that, you know, most of us, I don't even know, did you have any assemblies in high school about oh, yeah. like mental health? Oh, were they, well, no, were no, they no, no, good? No, not around mental health, assemblies okay. in general. You yeah, had assemblies in general, right. Okay, so, and none of them were about mental, mental health. Mental health was not discussed at all. Yeah, so we had a few and they were all terrifying. Like, I remember this one woman came to talk about her experience as an assault survivor. And she had this British accent. And she just kept going back to this phrase. She said, it's possible, it's probable, it happened to me, and it could happen to you. She just kept repeating that phrase. We so, all scaring the shit out of these Scaring the shit out of these kids. And I'm all like, wow, like, this is terrifying and... You know, people who had been through, like, hard, horrible, horrible drug addictions. And I was like, yo, what if mental health wasn't such an emergency all the time? You know, what if we just, you know, sure, one in five people are going to have these, are going to have severe mental health issues this year. But, like, five in five people are going to have pretty bad anxiety at some point. Sure. You know? Yeah. And... I imagine that if we can do a better job of taking care of the day-to-day, 
then we as a community, as a global community, are going to be more prepared to take care of that one in five people. And so I just started writing and performing because I wanted it to be approachable and accessible and not so damn scary. Like, you could be depressed and be dope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the sound of that. You could be depressed and be dope. These it's are, true. Yeah. These are not mutually exclusive. Um, and so I would go and perform and often uh, there would be someone who would come up to me and say, hey, I think you're right. Or I've never thought about it like that. Or you know, you're the first person who talked about depression in a way that I actually related to. Can I talk to you? And the answer is, well, yeah, you can talk to me, but I'm not a therapist. Yes. I'm not licensed yet. I'm not licensed <laughs> to take that you know any further. And I really wanted to be able to you know I'm not just interested in working with people one on one. I want to be able to go into schools and say, hey how are you teaching healthy relationships? How are you teaching social and emotional coping skills? Um, so that it is this more uh, big picture, broad spectrum type of thing. Because again, it just doesn't have to be so scary. It's like, we're two dudes talking about mental health. Like, <laughs> It's so stigmatized. Yeah. We're here in New York. We live in sort of a bubble. Sure. Where, and only reasonably recently has it become even a little bit normalized right. to talk about mental health. Totally. But you go to other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and they're, and I don't want this to come across as insulting or demeaning or anything, they're behind us mm. in a lot of ways. How do we make this conversation normalized globally? How do mm. we destigmatize? Yeah, we can say that other people are are not quite um, on the same page, but at the same time, I feel like the circles that you know you and I often find, or at least that I often find myself in in New York, have like gone to the complete other end of the spectrum with mental health. That it's suddenly sexy. I'm like, oh, you're a mental health influencer. Oh God. Let me let me snap this photo. That that's horrible. And. And a lot of these folks are wonderful people. And a lot of these folks also have absolutely no background <laughs> in mental health and have only read the books that have come up in the last 10 years and, uh, you know, aren't grounded in any necessarily uh, any necessary science behind it. So I think there are two things that need to happen. And, and both of them are about getting grounded in the realities of what mental health and mental illness really is and um, what we actually need to do about it, right? So there are the folks who are just totally scared to talk about it. And then there are folks who are so willing to talk about it, they're putting a lot of bullshit out, you know, and they're not there. It's almost like, have you heard this phrase, lean in, you got to lean in. I've heard of this phrase recently. Yes. Okay. So this phrase, this phrase really, really gets me. Can you explain what it yeah. means? So lean in is often heard in times of strife and adversity someone uh of my new age friends will say you know mike when hard times come up sometimes you really just got to lean into them lean it sounds in, so like. oprah. it's so oprah <laughs> uh and then <laughs> i was talking to my sister the other day and she goes you know sometimes it's okay to lean out <laughs> like sometimes it's okay to back the fuck away because this is a disastrous situation i was like Wow, lean out. 
And, you know, so this is some of the stuff that I'm talking about is we've created this new pop psych self-help world with phrases that frankly aren't always the best instructions. You know, most, a lot of people that I know don't need to lean in. They need to stop doing some shit and like stop working so hard and lean the fuck out. Drop that boyfriend and move on. Like, don't lean into the fact that he's been cheating on you for six months. Like, <laughs> lean out. Lean in the complete opposite direction. Uh, it is fascinating, man. I'll go to other town, like smaller towns or even, you know, other major cities and even people within New York who are not part of the mental health world. And I'll say mental health counselor or therapist. And I get a look. What sort of look? It's just a pause. Or do they ever say what they're thinking? Well, sometimes they say what they're... I'll tell you, they're not thinking the same thing if I had said, oh, I'm a pediatrician. Sure. Like, <laughs> you know, that, it's not the same response. They'll often say, oh, that's, that's so important. Or, you know, it's becoming so important. That's my favorite. It's becoming. As if it hasn't been. It was never important. It was before. never important before. And then there are a lot of other questions of like, oh, what does that mean? What do you mean? Oh... That must be, you know, you must see a lot of crazy shit. It's like, I'm not an ER doctor. <laughs> people, I mean, people got cheated on. Or it's a high school kid who really hates their math teacher. Or, you know, a grown man who suffers with crippling anxiety. It's, uh, and then of course, there are, you know, people that I'll talk to who have more severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar and even still again they're not like coming in wielding knives so maybe i'm sure at some point in my clinical experience i will deal with stuff like that but it's not the same reaction they would give to a pediatrician are you not considering it the same way because physical illnesses are usually visible well i think that's a whether that's exactly what they're thinking and they're aware of that's what they're thinking or not almost doesn't matter i think you hit the nail on the head it's like that is what the stigma stems from, right? People fear what they don't understand. That has always been true. Like, you know, the first people that started saying that the earth was not the center of the universe were not exactly trending on Twitter. <laughs> it's, oh, it, they were not super popular. Right. Um, and you can't hit what you can't see. It's like my favorite story to reference. There was an interview with a former enforcer from the National Hockey League, and they were asking him about Wayne Gretzky, who was the greatest player of all time. And they said, Wayne Gretzky was really small. He was a tiny guy. It's a rough sport. Why didn't you just hit him? And the guy just looks at the camera and he says, well, you can't hit what you can't touch. And I think that's the deal with mental health, is people can't see it. They can't feel it. They don't know what it looks like. It often doesn't even look like anything. It doesn't. It's very amorphous. Yeah, and you know, you walk past 20 people on the street, they could all be severely depressed and you wouldn't know. You'd have no clue. Um, And then, you know, stigma is both public in the sense that there is a general sense that people with mental illness are childlike or unpredictable. You don't want to work with them. And then there's personal stigma where the person actually starts to believe that. You know, like where I, I mean, for me personally, I started to really think that there was something wrong with me, that I, there was an inherent flaw to my being. If someone thinks that they're broken or that they're wrong, 
they're going to be that much more resistant to talking to people about it or getting help about it. So one stigma feeds the other stigma, and it's all mostly, I think, because we, we can't see it. And you're totally right. So let's roll with that thought and yeah. talk about your own personal experience. Sure. When did it become apparent to you, or did it become apparent mm-hmm. to you at an early age that there was something going on there? Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard people tell their stories around mental health and they can tie it into a pretty bow and have a real beginning and middle and end. And for me, my experience of it didn't have that, you know, as someone who makes his living being a storyteller, it's often frustrating that uh, my story feels, seems to lack that traditional arc to it. But what I can share is that starting in middle school, I, it wasn't working out. There was a difference between me and the other kids. I was being, uh, I was being bullied emotionally. There was a lot of teasing. Um, what a was lot the teasing of, in relation to? Pick a thing. Pick really? a thing. Yeah, the way I looked, the color of my hair, the complexion of my skin, my sense of humor, my voice the way I played sports or couldn't play sport, like pick a thing, whether that was, I mean, I don't think you, you can't cause someone to have mental illness, but that certainly didn't help. And sure. so, uh, I was certainly anxious and I started to really internalize the things that people were saying to me. And that paired with what I'm pretty certain was a hereditary or biological predisposition for depression. It just started to come up for me throughout middle school and I was often sad and felt left out. Um, I was a happy kid in general, but there were a lot of days that I just, I mean, I didn't want to go to school, but really where it started for me was, I mean, so we're going to get there anyway, so I might as well, might as well jump in. The, all that teasing, especially as it related to my body, made me want a way out. And so I actually dove into porn, and I will talk more about that, I think, later, as to why I chose porn and sex and love uh, so specifically. But for me, it was really this idea that if somehow the rumor got out that I was the most sexually desirable kid in the grade, then the teasing would stop, right? Like, who's got the trump card on the prettiest girl in school? That was my seventh grade, sixth grade brain desperately trying to come up with something that would be a solve for it that would be a solution for what i was going through and i needed to do some research and the only place i knew to learn about sex was the internet so we'll get more into that later but uh in case you haven't heard this before the internet is not the best place to learn about sex and healthy relationships and neither was usher which was the first album i ever bought and i i swear the majority of what i knew about sex and love between fifth and like 10th grade was porn and usher Usher. that's yeah that is a bizarre combination i I mean it didn't work (laughs) it didn't work Um, if anybody listening has ever relied on usher for their (laughs) <laughs> solutions to their romantic and or sex problems. Sorry, Usher Raymond, but we now have conclusive evidence that that does not work. Yeah. In retrospect, I think a lot of the issues that I had in middle school were a result of bullying and not anything internal. Uh, but, you know, in the sense that I really wish that 
rather than being medicated, I had been brought to get meditation lessons or boxing lessons so I could figure out how to deal with my anger in a healthy way. But regardless, by the time I was in college, um, I had depression and I had severe anxiety. Not severe anxiety. I know people who had worse, but you know, a real fear of starting projects, social anxiety. On the one hand, I was the guy who was on stage and talking to everybody at parties, but I hated being at parties. And being on stage was one thing. Walking into like a small gathering with people I didn't know, I was terrified. That's really interesting. And I, a lot of people that I've either known or read about that do public speaking mm-hmm. or are singers or actors or whatever have said similar things. Like if it's a room with a thousand people and I need to get up on stage, no problem. Yeah. If it's 20 people in a room and I have to walk around and be social with everybody else, right. that's a problem. What's the, like the cognitive process involved with looking out in a crowd and seeing 500 people in front yeah. of you versus having to be a member of a crowd of like 15 people? It's a really hard question to answer and one that I've thought about because it doesn't, that difference doesn't really make sense, right? You'd think somebody who can get on stage in front of a thousand people and tell a deep, dark secret. Like, I was a porn addict for 15 years. You know, like you're just singing songs and shit. You're talking about real stuff. Right. And so you would think that that person could handle, you know, some kind of business networking event. And I can't. I can't. Um, And I've well, I've thought about it. I also can't. You know, to it's something I'm really actively working on now. For years, I would never ever go up to the person that I was most attracted to at the at the party or wherever. I just I never gave myself permission to do that, and or never felt like I could do that. I think the answer lies in where my confidence is. I really like my work as a performer. I really like the poems that I've written and the stories that I tell. And I think they're good. And do think they're good. I believe in them. And so when I'm on stage, I've got a lot of things working in my favor. One, there's a certain power that's been given to me just by being the person on stage. Like I already know that in a certain way, I've earned enough of your respect that you're going to pay attention for a short while. And then I have a lot of confidence in what I do. And I I have often said that when I am on stage and performing, it is really the only time in my life that I am a hundred percent certain that I'm in the right place. And the rest of the time, it's like 70% at best, (laughs) at best. That's a great day if it's 70%. And yeah, so I think I, I am confident that what I'm doing on stage is good. And also, if there are 100 people or even 20 people, there's a certain sense of anonymity. It's a lot easier to tell a secret to 300 people whose faces you can't really see than one person you really care about. And so then going to parties or talking to girls or something, it's like, oh man, I could so easily get rejected. I'm not as confident in the way that I am off stage. And so I think that's where it comes from. And it also very likely comes from being bullied. Whether I want to or not, I kind of assume that people are going to reject me. And I don't mean just like I ask somebody out on a date and they say, no, I'm not interested. I mean, like, reject my humanity, reject my inherent worth, like, reject any sense of value that comes from me. Like, so rejection on a holistic, 
level, not a, nah, I don't really want to kiss you right now kind of level. Sure. Yeah. There, there's a certain school of thought that kids are going to be kids no matter what. Mm. And the way that kids enact their own insecurities or transpose their own insecurities or, or um, whatever is by bullying other kids. Hmm. Is there, do you think that there is a way or that there will be a time when kids are less apt to make fun of or bully or be nasty to other kids? There's a lot of clap back around terms like boys will be boys, right? And kids will be kids. And look, as someone who's studying human development, there's a certain amount of evolutionary truth to the fact that we are animals and we have animal instincts and we will respond accordingly. I, I don't think it's an excuse to justify any amount of um, negative energy thrown at another person. I don't really have an answer to your question, but I have a, a, it brings up another question for me is I wonder what it looks like to improve education around relationships so that our young people can begin to understand what exactly they're looking for when they make fun of other people. And similarly, if we can't prevent the bullying, which I don't think we can, you know, again, yeah, totally. like teasing is always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can we give folks tools to deal with it when they're on the receiving end? You know, I talk about this, like, you and I have talked about this, like, why was I taught geometry and physics and English and all these other wonderful topics, but we never found time to include healthy relationships? Yeah, social skills. Social skills. We're never taught. How do you interact with people who are different from you healthily? And how do you express feelings in a positive way? If it is being taught anywhere, let me know because I would like to know where that place is. But when I was growing up, and it doesn't sound like when you were growing up, that happened. Look, I I really don't know, in short of some sort of massive, systematic, infrastructural change... I don't know if we'll ever have the money and resources necessary to fully train and support kids in learning how to not bully. So I wonder what it means in the meantime with the resources that we do have to train kids to be in that environment. You know, words, a word that just came to mind while you were speaking is resilience. Like, how do we teach about resiliency and community care? You know, anytime there's a bully in the room, other people know and other people are watching and there's a million and one calculations that go into how we are going to respond to that bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what if I do this and what if I do that and what will that lead to? Very rarely do those calculations lead to an intervention. I wonder how we can raise that ratio. You know, building a sort a sense of sort of community bound resilience. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about. So Right, that's the other thing. Some people would say that teaching children to not bully and to treat other children and adults respectfully is a mm-hmm. function of parenting. But there's gotta be checks in place in case the parent or parents drop the ball. Yeah. You know, and obviously kids are a lot of times gonna act differently in front of their parents or their elder relatives and they yeah. work around teachers or around other, around their peers. Yeah, I mean, it brings me back to where we started today's conversation about this sort of uh, pop psych resurgence and 
um, one of the phrases, another phrase up there with lean in that's often thrown around is hurt people, hurt people. Well, yeah. Which I think is some bullshit. Hurt people, hurt people are more likely to be hurt by other people. People with mental illness are far more likely, so specifically mental illness, are far more likely to be victims of violence than they are to perpetrate violence. What is true is that insecure and scared people hurt people. And I don't mean insecure in the way that we use it the majority of the time. Like, oh, you're so insecure, that, that person's so insecure. I mean, people who feel a lack of security, who feel unsafe because they're confused, because they are genuinely scared, because they, you know, maybe they fear rejection like I talked about, or they fear uh, being ca- called out for something, there's ignorance. These people hurt people. So if we're talking about ending bullying, why don't we look at the people who are bullying and notice that they are probably hurting themselves, right? They're, in, they're feeling some amount of, of unsafety and insecurity in their environment. Fifth grade sucks. Yeah. You know, we will never be able to guarantee that every fifth grader who comes into, you know, Miss Taylor's classroom is going to be safe. Because there's puberty and there's hormones. There's hormones! There's hormones and body parts and, you know, everything's, and and math is hard. Math is very hard. (laughs) We'll never be able to say it's safe, but how can we make it safer? And how can we support the people like we often go right to the, I mean, especially when we're talking about youth, we go right to the victims. Why aren't we also talking to the bullies in the same way? Because they're not coming up with that on their own. Nobody wakes up in the morning, you know, to extrapolate to adults. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, today feels like a fun day to become an addict. Right. Like, right. <laughs> you know, it always comes from something else. It's an honest attempt at dealing with the world around us. So... The, answer, the short answer to your question that I wish I'd come up with earlier, how about some empathy? How about it? So in terms of learning how to be a boy or a man mm-hmm. or whatever, I, you know, it's so like nebulous, what were you taught that's, val- that's proven to be valuable and what were you taught that's proven to be absolutely incorrect? Most of it. I went to a progressive school where... It's a progressive school, first of all. Uh, it was private. It was in New York, so liberal. We had things like, you know, diversity, talks about diversity and talks about inclusivity and mental health. And, you know, we had resources. There was a school... I think at least like two or three counselors in the school. There was a school psychologist. You know, there were resources, which already is a very unique mm-hmm. situation uh, and one that I was very lucky to be around because even though the only people who went to see those folks were people who were in trouble, at least I heard the word psychologist, right, and heard the word therapy, and, and that was a blessing. So I grew up in this progressive environment that often gave lip service to this idea of, you know, of course men can cry and it's okay for boys to be emotional and uh, boys can be dancers or ballerinas. And, and we had that. You know, I remember the best, the two best running backs on our football team were also two of the best dancers. 
And yet culturally, and I could not tell you why, but I really became convinced that uh, masculinity had to do with my body uh, and a very specific type of body, like, you know, the dudes on the Abercrombie and Fitch bags, like those those guys who are like pure models, but they're dressed like the crew team or some shit. Right. Perhaps because of, or in, at least in its relation to how that made me appear to the people I was sexually attracted to. Or who I thought I was supposed to be sexually attracted to. Okay. Um, you know, pretty girls. I mean, it was still a very heteronormative world. Like, yeah, we were encouraged to be football players and dancers, but being gay was, you know, not... I mean, we had it. We knew that people were around, but um, it was very much made fun of and narrow-minded and... Yeah, you know, we didn't have the education around that. You know, come to think of it, it's very interesting that that was just this huge gap. So, yeah, I think somewhere along the line, I picked up this idea that masculinity had to do with the way I looked and in what ways that gave me a sense of power over women. And that's pretty wrong. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I learned that women were actually interested in sex on their own. I remember this distinctly because I was crossing, I was in front of the bagelry on 80. That was the name of the spot we all went to hang out. We were in front of the bagelry on, I guess it's like 88th Street in Lexington in Manhattan. And some girl from, I guess, another high school like shouted at me and was like hitting on me. I was like, wait a minute, you want to hit on me? I thought this was supposed to go the other way around. Like, I was so unaware. I was so unaware. And then I also remember when I was talking to a girl who, you know, was very stereotypically like the pretty American girl who I assumed because of this, wherever I picked this up, this concept that like real men, the men that all women desire look like Abercrombie models. And she was telling me about how she liked, like, she was really into dudes with tattoos who were, you know, kind of a little bit overweight and, like, didn't like muscular dudes at all. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you? T it blew my mind. And really, since that moment on, and for the last, I guess, 10 or 15 or 10 years, I have just been re-educating on my own what masculinity looks like what masculinity can look like because for a long time i had a very narrow view of what it could look like and there turns out there are a few other options what was your experience learning about masculinity the culture i grew up in was very machismo hyper masculine oriented. yeah, yeah. It was hyper masculine my folks came from another country okay and men were men men ran the household yeah there was no mention of any you know anybody who acted even a little bit different mm -hmm. was you know was a fag basically mm. so that you know through junior high school and high school you know there was still that narrative that men were men yeah and there were really like no examples mm -hmm. of any kind of alternative masculinity in my personal experience so it was a culture shock kind of for me to graduate high school and get out in the real world and start working 
and be confronted with all of these different options. Sure. Some options made sense to me. Some options didn't make sense to me. Some options I tried to pretend didn't make sense to me, but did. And, you know, I'm still learning. Yeah. Like masculinity doesn't mean, again, like you said, it doesn't just mean one thing. There are plenty of doors. Right. But what I was taught, it was very rigid. But I think one thing that saved me, well, two things that saved me. One thing that saved me was the knowledge that I was queer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a push and pull for a long time as to what is wrong with me because I feel this way. Mm. And the other thing was getting out into the real world at a young age. I mean, I left home at 17. Yeah. And was put in situations where I was confronted with things that were different from what I've been taught growing up. Sure. So it's, it's, it's been an extended push and pull, and I don't think I really got to a point where I realized sort of the diversity and the um, spectrum of masculinity until I was in my 30s, probably. Just, you know, between being out in the world and therapy and the internet and all of these other things. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm in a stage right now where I understand it way more than I did before. Mm -hmm. But I spent a solid, you know, three decades in, in, you know, in the sunken place. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to me that even though it seems like we got it from different sources, we kind of ended up with that same conclusion of what masculinity was supposed to look like early on it sounds like you know we each had slightly different nuances i remember what really to go back to your question of how what have i learned that's new that works um i credit a lot of that uh for my recovery group like my 12-step you know sober mafia uh so to speak we're out there we're out there you don't sober know mafia. you don't know but we are lurking Stealth. yeah we're lurking at every bar Every subway, we're there. Oh, God. We know. We know how to find each other. Um, you know, because in these rooms, first of all, the women gave me a real window into a world that I had been trying. I thought masculinity was the key that unlocked that door of what women you know, were thinking. And, and I'd been trying to use masculinity as the key. And it turns out that uh, honesty and vulnerability and asking questions is the key. And I learned so much from these women who were willing to share their experience with me, you know, what they thought about the world, how they looked at men and sex and relationships. It was just eye-opening. And then at the same time, having the leadership and the role models of older gentlemen in the rooms who had been through the fucking ringer and come out the other side yeah, as lawyers and surgeons, but also as famous artists and band managers and, you know, guys who served up soda at Madison Square Garden, you know, all walks of life, you know, guys who've just been let out of prison, right. all walks of life. I mean, that is part of the beauty of the 12-step world is that you can be sitting in the same room as an A-list celebrity and a teenager who's cutting themselves in between math and science class, right? And we're all there for the same reason on the same level and can all help one another the same amount. Uh, but I credit those rooms with really helping me understand how masculinity could look and all the different shapes, sizes, and colors that it could be in. And also for reminding me or teaching me really for the first time what the limits of that were. Like being a real man wasn't going to unlock the world for me. So 
Tell me about the 12 step stuff. Yeah. So I mentioned before that, uh, I was being teased a lot from my body. I, which I mean, because you weren't muscular because you were, were you, did you look different as a kid or I, I looked a little different. I was definitely chubbier than I was now. You know, I was the pale redheaded kid. I had bright red hair and freckles and I got chosen to be that kid that people made fun of. And I don't know why. But even to the point where I remember, I actually played football, and I remember our team was sort of falling apart, and so they called this emergency team meeting, and the coach basically said, you know, sat all 40 of us down and said, we're locking the doors, and until you guys work this shit out, nobody leaves. And it was just like, open share time with the football team. And at one, and this whole, my whole life, I had thought, you know, it seems like people pick on me more. And then counselors and my parents would say, no, kids are just kids. I'd use that phrase that you used before. Kids are just kids. They're mean. It'll get better. And then one by one, multiple people in the room said, I don't know what's going on with the team, but we need to stop picking on Mike so much. Like you, you know that you do this and then you keep doing this. That's worse. You know, they knew. And, um, you know, again, I would never, I want to be real clear. It's not like I was not doing that to other people. I would turn around and pass it on because I didn't have the, the skills and the wherewithal to know how to hold my own and or even believe in myself in the slightest. But uh, all of that to say, I was being teased a little. And I really think, I thought that if that the definition of masculinity meant that women wanted to sleep with me. That that's what women do. They sleep with the most masculine person in the room. Back then, I had no concept of the queerness that I'm now exploring. And I said, all right, if I need to get the hottest girl... Because if the hottest girl in the school liked me, I nobody would have shit to say about how I looked. Right? That was my thinking. They'd be like, Mike's the man. You yeah, Mike's the man. The if this chick likes... You know, right. wow. Wow. I can't believe we made fun of the way he looked. Um... And so I, I went to the internet for research and I found porn and I was immediately, I mean, it went from research to hobby real, real quick, <laughs> real, real quick. And there was so much that in retrospect was appealing to me. It was a place that I could be in control, you know, where no one made fun of me. And in fact, it was very easy to find material where the other person was being degraded. And that put me immediately a slightly above where I was in school all day. It was also something I could do and close the door and pretend that I was doing homework, but no one in my family would bother me. And I could tune out the world and find anything I ever want. And really it was this sense of control that I had none of in my real life. And there's a lot out there now that questions whether or not porn and sex can actually be addictive. But I'll tell you that my patterns mimicked addiction. It was compulsive, absolutely compulsive. I had no control over when I would do it. I mean, I was 16 and looking up books at Barnes & Noble around porn addiction. It was, it was bad. Wow. And, but I didn't want to talk to anybody about it because I was like, this is the worst. <laughs> this is the worst. Like, if I was doing drugs, I'd be okay to share it, I think. But... You know, I, now I, I'm not only an addict, but I have to tell people I'm watching porn. Like, this is no way. 
no way. And it just got so much worse in college when I was on my own, you know, and had free access to everything. And, and it got worse after college to the point where I really felt that, you know, I needed to act out with porn before I went to work, when I got back from work, before I went to bed. It wasn't every single day. I wasn't like jerking off in friends' rooms. You know, none of my friends listening to this need to be creeped out. I wasn't, you know, uh, yeah, I wasn't like, you know, secretly masturbating in bathrooms while we were hanging out. But it might have been why I was late to hang out with you one or two times, you know, uh, because I would get sucked into this world where life was so much easier. Meanwhile, my love for writing continued to grow. And my favorite time to write was at night when I was alone in front of a computer. And another thing that's very easy to do at night when you're alone in front of a computer I, I see where you're going. is watch the board. Yeah. I would sit down to write and within minutes would be on Pornhub or you know whatever it was back then. And by the way, I'm not alone. I, I can't remember what the number was, but there was a chart showing how long it took Twitter, Facebook, and Pornhub to reach a million visitors. And it was something like it took Facebook something like, you know, a couple of years. It took Twitter a couple of months. It took Pornhub like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it was, you know, I'm not alone in this. And you know that most of those visitors, not all of those visitors were older than 18. Yeah, like, of course. You know not. that. Of course not. And I remember thinking, wow, if I don't get this under control, I will never be the writer that I want to be. And that was the real moment for me. And I spoke to a trusted friend and they were like, look, I don't know much about it, but I am pretty sure there are groups for this. And so I walked into Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous for the first time. I was like, yo, these people are fucked up. <laughs> I am nothing like these people. Like, oh, this guy's using prostitutes and this guy cheated on his wife and... I was just like, yo, but they're also 20 years older than me and are just now starting to get help. If I don't get help now, what, what does that what look like? What are the chances like? that you, 10 or 20 years from now, become that person? Yeah, and yeah. look, I'm really uh, lucky. Like, my behavior was always only online, right? You know, I never took it further than that. But it was affecting my life in every way that an addiction would. Um, and And perhaps worst of all, when I was in those time warps of internet use, I was alone. I was alone with the illusion that I was not. Hmm. I was alone with the illusion that I had company. And in reality, my friends were out hanging out together or going to poetry readings or concerts and feeding their brains and their souls. And I was inside watching porn. And so, yeah, I found myself in a 12-step group and there's a lot, again, that I'm learning now that suggests that maybe it's not an actual addiction, but these groups work for a lot of people, whether it's an addiction or not. And it helped me. I mean, part of my life predates the internet. Mm -hmm. So I think in a sense, the fact that I did not have the internet when I was a teenager or a young adult yeah, maybe saved me from some stuff. Right. But there were certainly periods in the exploration of my own sexuality, I feel like maybe my behavior might have constituted mm -hmm. something that others would consider addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 90s, in New York City, 
if you wanted to have gay sex, all you do is go to Central Park. Yeah. Like, you didn't have, you go to Central Park, you go to the Peep Shows, mm-hmm. you go to the Times Square. Go to the go, Ramble, man. Yeah, you go yeah. anywhere. And if I had a day off from work or if I had time off from work, that's where I was going. Yeah. I, I feel some level of similarity mm-hmm. with what you're talking about. And I don't actively know why I did it. I think, mm-hmm. A, I had a very high sex drive. Yeah. B, I think I was trying to establish a connection through sex that I realized much later could not be acquired, obtained by right. recreational anonymous right. sex. I think I was just bored and looking to fill time with stuff. Yeah. I needed to let off some steam from totally. working 60 hours a week. So there's, there's a variety of reasons. Again, do I think it was an addiction? Mm, <laughs> right. I don't know. I wasn't like missing work. I sure. wasn't shirking any responsibilities. Um, but I was probably doing that stuff more than most people would consider healthy. Yeah. And, you know, thank goodness, not good. I came out of that disease free. You know, and I have no, not, and that's not to say I had any issues with people who enjoy sex on a regular basis. Uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. be as slutty as you want to be. Uh-huh. Uh, just, you know, I don't know if I was doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Well, right. And I, man, there's so many layers. If it was a behavior that you just sort of aged out of, my guess is that it wasn't an addiction. I, I mean, there's certainly nothing pathological or wrong about um, masturbating every day, even multiple times a day. The definition, the, the working model of, of addiction that I use when I'm talking to young folks or people who come to see me for you know any reason, coaching, etc., or in workshops, is, is it impeding the life that you want? to live it one is it compulsive is it unhealthy and is it impeding you know a life that you want to live is it getting in the way of your relationships your work your health your happiness does it affect your serenity if the answer is yes then you're dealing with what at the very least is a very compulsive behavior right it's not a mindful thing Mm -hmm. and that was what my my porn behavior was like it wasn't like i was waking up in the morning and saying, oh, wow, like some porn would feel really good for my soul right now. It was waking up in the morning anxious and panicked about the million things that I had to do today, and rather than do any of them, spend three hours on the Internet. And let's be real. I am in no way against porn. No way against porn. I know people in that world. They're awesome. They're good parents. You know, Absolutely. Uh, I have nothing against it. I think it can be really hot. I think it can actually help couples. I think in a lot of ways it does inform people about sex and the wonders that are out there for us um, and can help free our minds a bit from the uh, really puritanical values that a lot of our culture is based around which can also be super inhibitive inhibitive and damaging in their own way absolutely and so but at the same time it's a dangerous thing Mm -hmm. i would never tell somebody hey uh all alcohol is bad i would never say fast cars are really awful like there's an immoral thing about fast cars but I also wouldn't give a 12-year-old who has never taken driver's ed the keys to a Lamborghini, sure. 
right? Approach it with a skillfulness and a certain mindfulness. And, you know, what, what just sucks is that we have a sex education program that teaches us about all the dangers of sex and none of the joys. And then we get porn, which teaches us about all the joys and none of the dangers, Absolutely. right? And it's very hard. I mean, 13-year-old Mike Rosen didn't stand a chance. High-speed internet, free porn, marketing companies that, you know, I mean, are porn companies that have entire marketing branches to figure out how to get me to watch more porn, an entire culture that wants me to be hyper-masculine so that I can then pursue women and only women, right? I didn't stand a chance. The fact that every kid I know didn't come out of middle school with a ridiculous porn addiction is beyond me. It's crazy, right? Yeah, and por- I mean, porn was the thing that, that was, that was it, porn saved my life. Porn saved my life. Like, it was for so long, one of the few, before I found the stage where I was 100% confident that I was in the right place, when I was watching porn, I at least had the illusion that I was in the right place. Okay. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware that that is what I was feeling. But looking back on it now, you know, 15 years later, I can be like, oh, that's what was going on. Because nobody was making fun of me. I was talking to uh, one of the lead psychologists over at the University of Pennsylvania who works and talks a lot about porn. And she's done research and et cetera, et cetera. And very wise, also very hard line on, you know, porn is not good for us. And I, I told her, I said, look, I don't care if it's an addiction or not. I couldn't give two shits whether the academy believes that sex and porn are addictive. What I care about is the fact that there are a lot of people who are hurting because they don't understand their relationship to sex and love, especially relationship to their own sexuality. These people are hurting. They feel fear and they feel shame. And the only thing I care about is how we help them. Because to go back to the thing about how people fear what they don't understand and how scared people hurt people, I have a feeling, a hunch. If all the men who have doubts about their sexuality and fear about being rejected and misconceptions around consent and what's actually sexy to women, if we solved that, would we, I don't know, would we be addressing the epidemic of sexual violence and harassment? I don't know. But it, we to might. Degree, I, I think we might. Yeah, absolutely. We might. Um, if only, again, because confused people and scared people hurt people. Right. You know, without meaning to, or at least without malintent. I was talking to a 16-year-old kid who came to one of my workshops and one of the things he shared was that he had gone to a concert with a friend of his, a, a girl. They hadn't talked since, and he heard from a friend that she felt that he had sexually assaulted her. And he said, I don't even know what I did. This was, by all accounts, a, I mean, in my limited experience with this boy, he was, he was kind, and he was genuinely sad that he hadn't been able to talk to this girl he really liked her mm-hmm. and he really had no idea i'm just like yo that's where we're at where we're so uneducated around these topics of sex and consent and um, relationships that 
there's assault happening that the perpetrators don't even know is assault. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. Like, imagine a world where we didn't know that murder was bad. Right. That's what we're doing. So, the evolution of that. Like, you yeah. coming out of this and using your experience to be an educator. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sort of starts with educating yourself. Absolutely. And where do you think you are right now in terms of being in a, you know, quote-unquote healthy place with all of this? I'm a sex guru. <laughs> uh, where am I in my own understanding of my sexuality? Sure. Is that the question? Yeah. Uh, it's very much ongoing. I had to learn from a lot of fuck-ups. The greatest of which was the way that I approached myself, right? You know, watching three or four hours of porn every day is not a very self-loving act. At least it wasn't for me. I could see how it might be for someone else, you know, if that's your thing. But for me, it was not self-loving or and it did not lead to self-acceptance. It led to shame and the shame would fuel, uh, you know, I'd get this adrenaline hit and that adrenaline hit of, you know, I've got to be better. I've got to be better. That would help me get my work done. Huh, and okay. so then I would get a good enough grade or perform well enough at a show, and that was how it survived for so long. I was not one of these people who couldn't function. I was functioning very well. You know, I went to a decent college, I got B plus, A minuses, but man, if I had not spent all that time watching porn, like, where would I be right now? I'd be like a Rhodes Scholar right. valedictorian, maybe, maybe, I don't know. So I had to first really start to heal that relationship with myself, which I did with the help of my, of, you know, the support, my sober mafia, uh, with really good therapy, which is no longer a luxury, by the way. I really want to get that point across to folks that you can find really good therapists for 15 bucks an hour. And I understand that even that in and of itself can be quite an expense for some people, but... Uh, it, it is not as much of the luxury as it once was. We need to get to a point where therapy is required it, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the school that I'm now interning at in Philadelphia. All the students are required to go to therapy with some regularity. Like they have several therapists in the school. And it's public school. So imagine if all the schools had that, right? So yeah, through looking at myself, you know, I found new hobbies that were really healing for me. I actually, you know, I don't want to sound like the stereotypical healing, but I loved yoga. Yoga helped me. I mean, it really got me in touch with my body in a way that playing football and ice hockey and lacrosse growing up didn't. It lacked that machismo culture. And I could still feel like I was getting exercise and there was this whole spiritual element. And that led me down a more spiritual path. So I was able to connect there and, and really just tried a lot of shit until something stuck. I started doing Muay Thai. You know, that was one of the most healing things in the world. So when this Muay Thai coach said, hit that as hard as you want. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Are you sure? Like as hard as I was like, hit it as hard as you want, as hard as you can. It felt so good. Um, so it really started there in healing and looking at my own, uh, the way I had sex with myself, right? Uh, and the way I had a relationship with myself. And that's hard, and that's ongoing, and I still learn new things about it every day. I'm learning shit about it during this conversation. That's awesome. And uh, then I also had to look at the hurt that I was causing some other people. I had a real pattern of 
sort of leading people on like, oh, we were going to be in a relationship and then, nah, maybe not. You know, not we wouldn't define it. Nah, maybe not. I'll go this way. I did that with like three or four people, right? And that was not nice. And they ended up feeling hurt. And also like, oh, I was such a romantic, Mike. I was such a romantic. And I thought, I thought this was the poet in me, right? No, this was absurd. This romantic, was, how? Oh, I would go on like, you know, seven hour drives to meet girlfriends and... You know, these dramatic long talks at night on rooftops and, you know, writing poems for people and mixtapes. It was, you know, I confused love with intensity. I get that. And those were not the same thing. And and I really had to learn about, oh, boundaries are actually kind of (laughs) cute. Boundaries look pretty good on, on me and they look great on the people that I'm dating. You know, so I had to learn that. I had to have a really shitty breakup, you know, where I got cheated on and gaslit and, you know, went uh, went really cuckoo for a while. I was doing things that I never thought I'd be the guy to do. I was reading her notebooks, trying to get, like, trying to hack into her email. Like, I was that dude. And, wow. and like, yeah, my dad had just died. There was a lot going on for me. Uh but I really, that was rock bottom for me in this sex and love addictive behavior that I was so convinced, man, that I needed to be with this person in order to be happy that I completely forgot about my own boundaries. I completely forgot about myself. And as soon as we broke up, I like, I wrote a whole album. I went on my first national tour. You know, I raised a bunch of money to produce that album. I got in the best shape of my life. It was like, oh, this is what happens when I take care of myself. How different. Isn't it amazing how the desire for connection can fuck people up mm-hmm. so much? Mm-hmm. And so to, an- to finish what is already a long answer, and I don't think everyone has to do this. I took a real break from sex and dating. I really took a step back. It's like I I went from being the person who baked cakes every day to like, oh, okay, it's this really big event and somebody just like handed me a slice of cake, maybe I'll have a few bites. Like that that's where I that's that's the metaphor I would use. Like if it if it was present, if it was here. I respect you that. know, I slept with like maybe two or three people in a year and it had been a long time since I'd been alone. And again, I don't think everyone needs to do this, but also, if you don't know what you're like when you're alone, like it, it's fun to find out. Even if you never tried it, you don't think you need it. It's like it's I a fun agree. experiment. I agree, 100%. And so, and now it's still ongoing. You know, I'm in a relationship and literally figuring it out day by day. It doesn't look like any of the relationships I've had before, which I think is a good sign. Sure. Um, but I'm still learning, and I'm really trying to be. To address the the recovery helped me heal my shame and to stop shaming myself, but it didn't really give me the tools to do the things that I wanted to do but felt too ashamed to try. So recently, I've really been learning more about sex and um, the you know the actual technicalities of it and exploring and exploring <laughs> sex and what does it mean to have different uh, kinds of partners and you know, really learning about porn and meeting people in that world and doing a lot of the things that I was scared of because I thought that they were dirty, bad, and wrong. 
right? But now that I have a, enough of a self-understanding and self-love, I can be like, oh, I can do these things and not feel like I'm, you know, breaking any of my values or morals. And I also know where I want to stop. And so it's been a nice change. It's been It's been a nice new chapter to go from all this healing and, you know, kind of cleaning out the wound to figuring out what I want it to look like in the future. What was that journey like with you, uh, especially with queerness as part of the equation to that, the same question I just answered of figuring out what your relationship to sexuality is now and relationships is now, you know, how does that changed over the years for you? I bought into a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. I want to say a lot of conditioning. About what it meant to be queer? About what it meant to be queer and about what it, what relationships meant. Yeah. I thought relationships validated me. I, like you, mm-hmm. was bullied a lot. I, I still don't think I have incredibly good self-esteem. But there was a point in time, for a long time, when I didn't think that I was valid unless... Valid as a human being. Yeah. Unless someone was willing to go out with me. Mm-hmm. I realize now that's not the case. I used to think that being married and having having family was sort of the ultimate validation. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anymore. In terms of queerness, I mean, that's that's kind of a an ongoing thing because queerness is such a... It's, it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the way I access my queerness isn't going to be the same as everyone else accesses theirs yeah um so it's kind of just learning that everything is not what i was taught or what i was you know conditioned to believe that's what's made me sort of settle into the uh, a more comfortable space Hmm. and you know again like i'm not there yet i mean there's still a part of me that feels invalid being single There's also a very big part of me that's like, God damn, I'm really happy I'm single (laughs) because it's bad out there. Right. You know, I had to learn to be comfortable with my body and I'm still kind of working on that as well. You know, like you mentioned, certain technicalities, certain behaviors, certain things that just felt morally incorrect Mm. or taboo at a particular time, now I realize are not. Mm -hmm. And part of jumping into the sex educator world for me was really being around people who normalized behavior that I thought a long time ago, or maybe not such a long time ago, was bad or wrong, yeah. but is completely subjective. For me, the key has really been learning that there are no, there are very few binaries. There's very few like mm. rights or wrongs, yeah. and that most things exist on a spectrum. And there's nothing wrong with you wanting what you want, me wanting what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, honesty and communication and being willing to, you know, grow as you go. The no binaries thing is, is interesting because I think we do, especially around sex, we, I think there's a real tendency for folks to say this is the right side of the aisle. We should be doing, you know, kinky, sweaty, uh, sticky sex with each other all the time. Or we shouldn't be having any sex. Right. And it doesn't leave what you were talking about, the space for that uh, spectrum. Yeah. If you don't want to have sex, that's fine. Mm-hmm. If you consider yourself asexual, 
your personal opinion for you is that you only want to have sex with someone when you are married yeah. in a committed relationship. That's fine. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't uh, project that onto me and dehumanize the way I feel about that. Right. I mean, I think there's room for everything. Um, and, and there's so much middle ground. Yeah. And there is also, right, middle ground and common ground. Yeah. That's the part that I'm really interested in because, you know, I was on this panel out in L.A. with a bunch of porn stars and all of them were great folks and it was a great conversation. The one thing that I felt was not being acknowledged was that whether we thought porn was dangerous or not, whether we thought sex should be kinky or not, folks weren't acknowledging that was troubling to me was that regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, you've had one, at least one really tough moment with sex and love. We've all had one really tough or really scary or really confusing or at least really disgusting <laughs> moment Except with sex and love. love. So yeah, yeah some, all at once. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, or with the same person in the span of a week, yeah. you know? And we've all, or so many of us have also felt the ecstasy of love and the joy of love and the beauty of it, right? You know, we have these two common grounds of what love and relationships can look like, that whole spectrum. And so what was fascinating to me was that we were spending so much time. Here are a bunch of people who want to help people. And we were spending so much time debating the morality, so to speak, of our behavior rather than saying, hey, didn't we all have at least one shitty experience? How do we work together to figure that out? You know, hey, porn stars over here, how do we, can we use your platform to help everyone and people over here who are super educated can you you know super educated about uh, healthy sex and, and laws and stuff like that can we use some of your knowledge to help make our art and our performance and porn feel more uh you know safe or inclusive or something you know that was poorly worded because obviously there's a lot of porn that is meant to feel unsafe and that's yes. a real turn on for people right. and that's totally cool how do we all help each other deal with the tough moments, regardless of what side of the aisle we're on? That's what I'm trying to say. If you're, as long as everyone involved is over 18 and everyone consents, the field is wide open. Now, whether we individually are into things or not into things is a matter of discussion, yeah. communication, but there's nothing invalid about anything. Right. With, you know, as long as those parameters are in place. And even the over 18 caveat is problematic, right? Because let's face it. Kids are going to have sex before they, they hit 18. It's going to happen. So how do we prepare them to have right. wonderful conversations around relationships? Right. Well, and hey, definitely. what are you into? Yes. Or hey, have you done this before? Or hey, can I kiss you? Because I would really like to kiss you right. right now. Or I'm really turned on. Are you interested in this? What about like, I'm interested in this. How do we equip them to have these conversations where they feel safe? Because none of them do. Right, yeah, that's a whole separate conversation. None of them do. They're definitely, like, the sex education policy in the U.S. is so, like, ass backwards. Yeah. Uh, You know, I certainly came to my adulthood knowing below zero. (laughs) Negative. About sex in relationships. None. Yeah. Zilch. And I think had I learned those things in a healthy manner before I became sexually active, Mm -hmm. or even as I was becoming sexually active, 
there was a good 10 or 15 years that could have worked out a lot better in that regard. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, just to really drive home the point that I don't think sex is bad. And no, I don't, I, and I don't I, think no sex is bad. And I, mean, I don't think being a super you know, Abercrombie model is bad. You know, I think what's come up for me as I've gotten older is I need to find the pair of pants that fit. You metaphorically know? speaking. Metaphorically. Okay, because your pants look like they fit. <laughs> I was just about to say, like, Thank you. They're, brand, they're actually brand new. This okay. is my, you're my first audience All right. uh, to these pants. They're like basic Adidas track pants for those of you who are wondering at home. There's nothing fancy going on. But yeah, I needed my current concept of masculinity is what can I do? It's not even masculinity. It's masculine, right? When I see people of any gender identity rocking that identity, rocking the you know the lane that they choose for themselves, that to me is masculine. This like ability to sit in your own skin and be like, yeah, this is where I'm this. coming from. This is who I am. That is the masculinity that I'm really striving for. And one that doesn't cause harm. Whether you agree or disagree with Mike Rosen's thoughts on sexuality, you got to appreciate the fact that he's actually taken the time to think about stuff like this. One thing I've discovered from talking to people over the last couple of years is how repressed, confused, and uneducated so many people in general, and men specifically, and including myself, are or have been about sexuality. It's such a vast topic, and it certainly will be discussed more as this podcast continues. If you'd like to know more about Mike, check out HeyMikeRosen.com. That's his website, and it's where you'll find videos of his performances, and he might even write a poem or a story especially for you. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on Podbean, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. And please use the hashtag DetoxPod if you're discussing the show online. Leave a review anywhere that you can, and make sure you tell your friends about Detoxicity if you think that they'll enjoy it. If you have any questions about the show, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, shoot me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. You can also like this podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash detoxpod, or you can follow me or slide into my DMs on Instagram at it's Mike Joseph. I am Mike Joseph, and I thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Stay safe and healthy. Be well.